Hello, Catherine here. If you're listening to my podcast because you're a fan of wintering, the good news is that my new book, Enchantment, is available now. It's a book about how we can find a way to reconnect with a world that's sometimes hard to live in and even to find magic there. It's available in all good bookshops and please support your local indie if you can. For more information, you can go to katherine-may.com forward slash enchantment. Happy reading. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Life is full of what-ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Hello, I'm Catherine May and welcome to The Wintering Sessions, the podcast that sets out to learn from the times when life is frozen. This week I'm talking to the writer Tanya Shadrick. A few days after giving birth, Tanya found herself in an ambulance barely clinging to life. But surviving that terrifying experience changed everything. In this conversation, Tanya talks about how facing death made her bolder, more certain of her ambitions and more determined to become a writer and it also left her able to help other people who are nearing the end of their life. Yeah, when I published 52 Seductions, like which was, you know, a memoir about my sex life, but it wasn't a salacious memoir about sex. It was mm. a memoir about, you know, what it was like to live in a long-term partnership kind of, you know, that was the vibe of it. Right. And that was 10 years ago now, or more than 10 years ago. No, no, it was exactly 10 years ago. I, at the time, just as in the run-up to publication, there was a couple of other authors who had written about sex who had been outed in the papers, you know, like, so there was Belle de Jour and there was Girl with a One-Track Mind and they'd both written, like, quite different memoirs to me and that they were both about being, like, out there and having sex with loads of people and right. that sort of thing, which, you know, mine was about having sex in marriage, so it was much more boring. <laughs> But they were outed in the national press. And I remember, you know, approaching publication with this real 
sense of terror about what might happen to me, like how I might be treated. And of course, it just wasn't successful enough for anyone to care, you know. <laughs> and in the end, um, I, I like my intention was to reveal my real name on the day of publication to avoid that anyway. Right. But in the end, Marina O'Loughlin accidentally outed me in The Independent because she didn't realise. And she was oh. just like, so my friend Catherine May, who writes Betty Herbert. <laughs> like, um. So I woke up one morning and there was this like mass of people going, oh my God, I can't believe she did that to you and I was like no it was great thank you so much <laughs> it made it really low-key you know? <laughs> so sorry um I have you know press record in the middle of this because I suddenly thought it's quite good for us to start talking here because that really hits on the conversation we're going to have today Tanya um you know like we're talking about I think really how you became a writer in a funny sort of a way yeah. and the the personal wintering that led to the beginning of that process am I articulating that incredibly badly no that's a lovely way of putting it and I was thinking before we even began this today I was thinking because I've been going through in in my first draft there is a lot of references to winter and frozen landscapes in the sections that lead up to me becoming a writer, which was quite mm. a long period of time. You know, it was kind of like I'd always wanted to be a writer, but the actual process whereby I begin to write and start to do things in public, that was that was quite a long period of five years around very small children, babies. Yeah. But yeah, yeah, no, I, I've had several of these periods and, and because of my health, I don't have any specific condition. I've always just had like bad wonky joints. And um, if I get an infection, it becomes terrible always. Um, so I, I have, yeah, I have this. Like, oh, I think we're the same on that front. Yeah. <laughs> sort of almost like quite Victorian, like childhood thing of, of long periods in bed with meningitis and all sorts of things. So I've all my life had these times where I strive forward and then I have to just give up again and, and, and mm. wait and so that's why I read your book so often because it, it's so <laughs> yeah I think I think we had very similar you know growing up experiences but mm. um but I think what's always really interesting you know I've seen you speak a few times now mm -hmm. and you're such an amazing speaker anyway but like what is Thank particularly you. interesting is that you made this very 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 conscious decision to move into writing yeah. that was you know like I was always being a writer and you know like there was never a moment when I had to decide because it kind of happened mm. to me in a not in an unintentional way but just it was always there yes. whereas you made this very deliberate shift I think of you know very deliberate choice because you realized how short life was yes yes so mm. um is, should I speak a little to that to yeah. Yeah. Let's talk about that. So, yeah. So you, I mean, I know you tell the story brilliantly, but this is about, uh, you know, the period of, uh, was it your first child? Or... Yeah. So, so it's my first child and we'd already been through infertility treatment for three years. So that was a type of wintering as so many people know. So I described mm. that, you know, as a frozen landscape we found ourselves in, you know, we were trying to enliven our lives and my dying grandmother's, I was trying to give her a baby to give oh, her a reason to yeah. want to live because that's what she'd always been happiest in the care of children, young and animals and and then it became this nightmarish thing where children I wasn't really convinced I wanted for myself became difficult to have in the first place so that went on for three years and then and this is why the book is called The Cure for Sleep A Late Waking Life and I was very educated I always wanted to write I hadn't actually done anything apart from diaries but then 10 days after my son was born by emergency cesarean I was just about to pick a book off the bookshelf and my husband and I were congratulating ourselves on how neat and tidy our little home was and oh look we'd <laughs> absorbed the child with hardly a ripple and and then the blood started and it was just you know that's at that point 
I think I knew I had minutes to live. I think I just understood what was happening to me. Mm. Um, there was an ambulance on the high street miraculously. So it literally just turned the corner and came down our little no through road. And it just tipped me upside down and drove me away. Wow. Um, my husband didn't even know where they were taking me, just went. I mean, that's it's so momentary, isn't it? Like, just one no minute- pain, no illness. The midwife had signed me off that morning. Wow. Wow. I had no temperature. There was nothing wrong with me at all. Um, although I felt too fast. I remember saying to the midwife, I feel like I'm running too rich. Like I'm slightly manic instead mm. of sleepy. I don't get sleepy after breastfeeds. And she was like, well, you know, what would normal feel like with a first child? And I thought, fair enough. I'm absolutely terrified. So yeah. probably that's adrenaline. Um, but what I think made it such an interesting experience and worth now, you know, 13 years later, bothering to share with people in a book is because it was so often people die slowly from illness and, and there's a lot of drugs and a lot of time to mm. prepare because I, I worked as a hospice scribe after all of this. So I've seen people with a, quite a long time to prepare for, for their final days. But yeah. um, this was so sudden and it was also painless. And I incredible. Would, and there were no drugs. So it was a very existential experience in that something was happening very fast. But because I was in no pain, I mm. would think about what was happening to me. And I felt myself going towards a light. And you know, Oh, my goodness. It. You had the classic oh, kind yeah, of... yeah, yeah, sure. But I didn't want to read about that. So it's only in the last year or so I've wanted to read accounts about that because... I didn't ever want it claimed as some kind of biological or religious thing. I just wanted to use it to change my own life. Right, um, right. So I kept it very private for a long time only because I didn't want it kind of co-opted into other people's narratives of how the world is organised. Like in- infected by other people's beliefs almost, yeah. Yeah, I didn't want to know anything about near-death experiences. Um, but I knew that I was dying in, in the ambulance. And then there was this bizarre period of about eight hours in the hospital where I was being topped up with fluids, like a sort of car in, in for its service. And everyone <laughs> was quite jolly. And I remember thinking, oh, I'm still going. I, I can feel myself going again. And then wow. suddenly, indeed, it was an absolute emergency. It had been masking an arterial hemorrhage, not a normal one. Oh my goodness! And if there can be such a thing, it you know, it wasn't. It was it was an arterial uh, bleed, and it was only because so many fluids were going in me that I was still alive. And then suddenly, I was on the point of dying again, <laughs> and again in no pain. But this time, you know, really being outside the operating theatre and the anaesthetist saying to me, you're on the wrong bed, we're going to have to take you in awake and do it on the operating table, we're going to have to anaesthetise you in there, I'm going to go in and get it ready and, you know, I'm going to give you a minute to try and calm yourself down, um, but wow. we're going to try really hard to save your life. So it's almost like I got these two... Mo- moments of, weird. yeah. I got these two moments, both in their different ways, really clear-sighted about what was happening to me and... And, you know, um, the first time in the ambulance, and this is a big part of the book, is that, that you know, you can read a magazine and newspaper articles about regret, but, mm. oh, my word, it's painful. It's not the type of regret when you wish you hadn't done something. Uh, the, the pain of what you have not done is, yeah, that's why it needs a book, because it's, it's absolutely <laughs> dreadful. So it's the it's like the matter of eight hours, but in that time, oh. you you actually compressed a whole, yeah. you know, as you say, like some people have a, like years to die in, like you compressed yeah. all of that into a very short. Die in pain and fear in an accident. Do you see what I mean? It's like that clarity mm. and lack of pain. I think is quite rare, and mm. I think I think it was a personal choice. But of course, I also had this kind of like when I came around from from the coma I'd been put in afterwards. 
I had this absolute seized with a need to escape my narrow life after this thing I'd experienced, which was an escaping of boundaries, mm. like like in first love or first love making, or for some people, if their labors go well, that feeling I've heard mothers say when they're when a baby's delivered. It was like suddenly I had that need to go alone through the world. And of course I met my husband at 19. So by the age of 33, when I had my child, I'd been in a relationship my whole life really. And um I just wanted to leave, but I couldn't because I'd just become a mother. So at the point yeah, where I suddenly yeah. wanted to expand <laughs> my life and take risks after being completely risk-averse, being a dutiful office worker, that is precisely the point where I couldn't. And that then provided the kind of tension for what happened to me in the next 10 years mm. because I was staying and trying to change my life. Yeah. And that, I mean, it seems to me that you know, having a small baby is the worst possible moment to make a huge life decision Mm -hmm. because actually you're quite, you're quite stuck for a while, aren't you? I mean, you, I I don't know about you, but I went into like all kinds of, I don't know, states of mind when I had a small child about like, I thought I was going to do this and that. And I, (laughs) I'd wake up every morning full of resolve and, you know, I was going to, I was going to get out there and I had all these plans. And actually it's a period of slow acceptance that you are limited for a while. And there's not much you can do to get around the fact that you're going to need to spend a lot of hours a day sitting under a small child or as they get a bit older, playing with that small child and talking to them. And, and that's, wonderful but it's also so limiting and it's like it's both very very wild and windy if I had to give a weather to it it was kind of like and I did Mm. have a winter baby it was like (laughs) wild and windy and drafty and like you were out on a moor being windswept on the inside by this like enormity of time you suddenly had to tend into order Um, and then there was also that sense of like when snowfall happens and it's dark outside and everything's muted and muffled and quiet so it's all these strange but very far from the sun which is why your Mm. your idea of wintering really appeals to me because it was that I mean it was a winter baby but I think even in summer after that illness when it meant I couldn't leave the house for quite a long time because I was so weak you know I I describe in the book and I was so frightened as well I was so frightened um more than I'd been frightened before the emergency and and I Mm. remember saying to my husband who who you know he had slightly extended leave but then had to go back to London I had no nearby family didn't have the the friends I would be raising him with yet and I remember saying I am so frightened of this child that um I've actually got to go and shut myself in a room with him and not come out until I am because I was getting a lot of help from my husband and I suddenly thought I can't let this drift I've got to take you know charge Mm. of this feeling Um, and so we had this bizarre week where we pretty much didn't leave that room apart from to nip to the toilet I kind of made a base camp on the floor and I sort of stayed in there (laughs) with him (laughs) and and my metaphors at the time and in the book were about polar expedition and and right the base camp and deciding that you know like you know, like that wonderful thing, it was not wonderful, horrific, when Shackleton and some of his party, they stayed safe by being under an upturned boat for nine months or something. Um, And it was that feeling. It was like, I've just got to keep safe. But then there's going to come a point where the discipline and endeavour starts again. And Mm. at that point, I have got to be really, um, really disciplined and strict with myself, but also forgiving. I've got to be many supple things in order to change my life 
it in the way I want to. And it may take a very long time. Yeah. And I'm quite proud of myself. I'm quite proud of myself for going, this is going to have to be done around children because I was left as a child and it's had a lifelong legacy and I love my mm. husband. And it was that thing of this is going to take a really long time. And yeah. there's going to be times where you have to stop for a while and you have to winter down again and you have to go, okay, so now I've got an unexpected second baby that didn't come through <laughs> IVF. Oh, okay, I hadn't planned that, so now I've got to stop again. Um, but each time it was that thing of, okay, you've rested, now you need to risk. Mm. And that has been the kind of, it's been like quite a pulsing or quite seasonal. I've had like these seasons in my life ever since then. And that was um, 13 years ago today, I think. Wow, 13 years. I think this is actually the day that it happened, yeah. Do you think it helped in a way to have, to not be able to go straight out into the world at that exact moment? You know, do you think it helped to have that period of plotting and planning and thinking? Because I, I mean, like I, you know, like I talk to my writing students about this a lot and, you know, they say, well, what do you do if you can't do any work at the time? Mm. And I, I really sympathise with that. I really hate the advice that says, oh, you can always find some minutes. Like, <laughs> Sometimes you really can't actually. And I think mother work in particular is, it creates these unavoidable commitments that you can't slip out of and you can't create time efficiencies around. But I do think one of the things that you can do is use those quiet times when you're just sitting with your children while they're trying to fall asleep or you're hugging them while they're watching CPPs or whatever. (laughs) Um, You can be thinking and plotting and writing whole books in your head that are ready to flow out I I wonder if that that really helped you in a way to slow you down before you launched yourself into your next (laughs) project well yeah and I think it's about forming a sensibility as well and I think that in that time so I'd always written diaries on and off but they were quite mannered and they were very neat writing and you know I'd do them for a while and then stop all this kind of thing but I think what happened in that period was so for instance I had all these books you know because I live in a house of books like so many of us who who are connected online have and Mm. I kind of I selected different ones. I got different ones off the shelf that were to do with how to live, endeavor and endurance, you know. I actually began to form my sensibility at that point. So instead of reading novels and all the writers who I had read before, I realized they hadn't really taught me how to live. I was kind Mm. of, I was learning how writers wrote, but I wasn't really forming my own life philosophy or way of seeing and so in that time, I read less, but I read deeper. So I always had Thoreau's journals with me. I was reading Walt Whitman. You know, I was like really mm. going, I was read the same book of poems by Adrian Rich over and over and over again. So it was like depth work. Yeah, yeah. Which is also how I described that, that connecting with my son and learning to love him because everything that happened meant I didn't have any of those natural feelings of bonding. So I think that's how my writing life developed. It came out of really deep lived experience and a very particular sensibility I had developed in my quiet times. And quite slow rising. It's interesting that you're turning to like Thoreau and Whitman, who are, you know, quite kind of keen on solitude and isolation and slow self-understand, you know, the work of of self-understanding happening in quite a organic and slow way rather than any hurry. Yeah. I think that's, it's really interesting that that was what you were drawn to. And Mary Oliver's poetry, um, you know, so mm. I had this very literary background. I'd done my, you know, BA and MA and I had my first in distinction. I was very, you know, I was very at home in that academic world, even though I'd come from a working class background. But this this period where I was healing 
and learning to become a mother was, as I say, when I, I stopped thinking about how books were perceived in some kind of like idea of status. And I actually just went to the people who I felt were speaking to me about how to make sense of the world, how to make sense of the day. And I think Mary Oliver's poetry is so superb at that. And that's why she's so rightly loved. But she wasn't mm. on any of my courses. You know, these, these writers <laughs> were completely overlooked in the courses I did. So No, absolutely not. And so that's another thing I do in my writing the outside, as I call it, which is what I ended up doing um, when the children were a bit older, is this business of literally writing outside, pen on paper, and having books on like a little stepladder library next to me and putting them in people's hands. And that's just been one of the most joyous things I've ever done, to stop Mm. put these books in the path of people. It's been really special. Yeah, and and kind of recommending. Mm. I, I think... I mean, I don't know. I, I'd love to know your view on this, actually. I wonder increasingly if English and British writers, I, I'm going to say English, actually, because I think we're the ones that have the stiff upper lip problem in particular. <laughs> um, like if if there's some unlearning we have to do when we become writers, because I feel like the way we're taught literature is so often so kind of formal and so much about literariness mm. and about creating kind of emotional distance and you know there's there's always a bit of background sneering about writing that's too spiritual or <laughs> <laughs> you know what I'm getting at I, you know, I love that stuff so yeah one me of too. my favorite books and one that I shared so often when I was um doing hospice work is is Tuesdays with Maury I don't know if you remember it or ever read yes it. I never read it actually but I yeah I press it onto as many people as possible and my book isn't that but it's pretty close in terms of the decisions I've made about how I'm going to write my my first and maybe my only book so for people that haven't come across it do do look it up but it's you know it's this concept of a guy who in his lost middle years where he's lost the true path in life finds out that his favorite professor from college is dying this professor's Mm. featured on tv and they end up having their last tutorials together so he goes every tuesday which is why it's called tuesdays with maury and you see him visiting his beloved tutor who actually saw a different path for that man when he was young and they talk about life and death and how to live and how to love and how to accept your body failing and the fact that you know you're going to have to let people wipe your bum and you're going to have to have your food liquidized and they go there and it's all done in these beautiful direct conversations and I, I just think that book's wonderful and if mine gets anywhere close to that kind of directness of experience then I will be thrilled however it is received Mm. Um, if I feel that it would get put in the hands of somebody who's having to adjust to their life narrowing in or or growing colder around them I would feel I've done a good job really yeah Um, but I agree with you about that kind of archness or that sense that we can't tell stories you know I it's I'm trying I mean I've got lots of quotes in this book and now on the second draft I'm taking them all out because I'm actually just trying to speak from direct experience it's really hard it's not how I've been taught no it's not and I I think there's a thing for British writers that we all at some point in our career discover American writers Mm. and if we can learn to love them and, and put aside our training we learn something huge about saying much, much more than we've ever been allowed to say in our own upbringings. And it's that lovely, warm simplicity, but it's not simple. These people write all the time and every day. I'm not even sure if I'm allowed to, but um, I've been thinking about William Stafford. A lot of people haven't heard of him. He was incredibly prolific. He was a poet laureate in America. And he's very much like Mary Oliver and Wendell Berry and so humane mm. and writes political things as well. But he also writes a lot about 
that practice of giving shape to your day. And he's got a lovely one. I won't read it now because I'm probably not allowed to for copyright reasons. But No, I'd probably get people, sued. <laughs> yeah, people could look it up. And it's called Keeping a Journal. And just to paraphrase, he talks about, like you do in wintering, one of your one of my favourite passages in your book is when you talk about being up late at night. You talk about the inky hours. I think that's such yeah. a beautiful phrase. I love it, inky hours. And he, in this Keeping a Journal, he talks about the candle flame. He talks about the pen. And he says, you know, that these evenings deepened his life. It's where he learned to take his thoughts and put them into order. Um, and, and it's just a beautiful, simple, simple poem, but it's got so much deep experience in it. All mm. those hundreds of hours of his life when no one was looking, when he was trying to turn his experience into something, I find that really exciting. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I think that work that's about finding space, whatever that space happens to be, it always draws me in. I'm always interested in the space that people make in the world mm. to create and to think. We'll be back with more from Tanya in a moment, but first I want to tell you about my online course, Wintering for Writers, which is back online after a successful first run last summer. Wintering for Writers is designed to be a beautiful, reflective process for writers who are currently struggling, as so many are in this pandemic year. If you're feeling blocked or are losing hope, it's packed with videos and thought-provoking texts to help you rethink your practice, and there's an exclusive workbook to support your reflection. Best of all, you can work at your own pace and in complete privacy as you write yourself back into your creative flow. To find out more, go to katherinemay.com and click on Courses or follow the link in the show notes. And now back to Tanya Shadrick. So I'm going to move us on because actually for all, you know, we're talking about the end result, which is you writing a book, but let's dig into this ambition that was forming in you during those times. What was it that you decided to do? Because you decided to do it really clearly, didn't you? Yeah. So I, I knew I I had um, service sounds too worthy. It, it wasn't exactly that. I wanted to get more from the world and give more. It was quite mm. an appetite based thing. I wanted to make my life bigger. Um, so it wasn't a particular literary ambition. It wasn't status driven. It was like appetite. I wanted to really live. And of course, I was mm. very constrained because um, I had a part time job that was very senior. So I was doing a very senior job part time, you know, all the constraints that caregivers have. And so it was quite earthbound and plodding in some ways. It, it wasn't particularly exciting. It wasn't like someone who gets to go off and travel the world and, and um, <laughs> or walk the Pacific Crest Trail. And I love those books. Um it was much slower. So I said, well, what can I do? So I did some counseling training. And then I came up with this idea that I'd be a hospice scribe and at the local hospice, I had a good reputation locally and they let me try it. And for a couple of years, I would get a call and I would go to people's bedsides or their houses, sometimes in their last few days, sometimes a year before they died and help them talk about their life. Mm. So was a hospice scribe something that existed I'm sure there before... are people that do it, but I didn't know about it. It was just something yeah. I felt I could offer in the world. I was like, well, what can I do? I, I think because of my experience, I can meet people honestly in that. I don't think I'm going to struggle to make connections with people. And, and indeed, I didn't. And so mm. it wasn't life changing. It wasn't like I changed the sector or even worked with that many people because you know they're ill. So often things got cancelled, but it was enough to go well, I've really learned something here about how to meet people in a very vivid and direct, how to step out of my circles of belonging and mm -hmm. meet people in this middle ground. And what, what are the rules of engagement if you're a hospice scribe? Like, how do you approach that 
as a practice? Well, I was attached to the hospice counselling team. So I, I had supervision every month. Um, and, you know, you get extra, you know, there was training for people that volunteer at a hospice. So I had all of that. But then mm. I was trusted just to do no harm. And I never did. And when I first started, I was like a, a little bit overly formal because I wanted to look like I was professional in some way, even though I wasn't. Um, yeah, and I, you know, yeah. take a little briefcase and make sure I had all my recording equipment. And, and let <laughs> I love the idea of you with your briefcase. <laughs> but then as time went on, I got much more direct and I would turn up to people and I would just say, we may not have much time. You may never get the chance to speak to me again. So we can't really afford to work sequentially like we've been taught at school. We can't really begin at the beginning. We just need to begin with what in you you don't want lost with your life's ending that became the formulation I had you know what do you not want lost with your life's ending and Mm. then that became very vivid and very yeah that was a very exciting thing to to do with people to give them that permission to just go to where they were going in their head and share some of that and it was often about I mean of course there were lots of people who died who didn't need this service so I'm not saying all people are Mm. regretful I'm sure lots aren't I tended to meet the people that were feeling a little more regret which is why they wanted me there you know yeah and I I find it really interesting that you introduce that urgency into the process because I mean my um, father-in-law died in a hospice Mm. And I don't think the day he died, he knew he was going to die. I mean, I, in fact, I know that he didn't. So many people don't. <laughs> yeah. And I think, you know, there was a, like, <laughs> we're back to English politeness again. Sorry to slag off Englishness so much today. I'm not, I didn't really mean to do that. But, um, you know, there were, this kind of politeness set in whereby nobody wanted to talk to him directly about mm. his death. Mm. And even though he was in a hospice, which is where you go to die, I mean, the you know, the writing's on the wall there. Mm. I don't think anybody said that directly to him. Just because I feel passionate about this, generally hospices are the people that break to clients or patients and their families that they are going to die of this if they don't die of some accident or emergency beforehand Mm, it's mm. extraordinary I mean they gave me statistics in my long ago training I don't remember them but the the amount of people that get referred to hospice who do not understand that they've been referred because they are dying yeah and it's the hospice's work to to go there with them and they can sometimes be very very resistant Oh, I mean, because it's it's just not part of our conversation. And no. I mean, I, I thought hospice staff were magical. I mean, they they understood the minutiae of the process of dying, and but they were signaling it to us and not him. You know, yeah. they were taking us to one side and saying, because on the, on the morning that he died, he um, lost use of his legs. He had mm. uh, mesothelioma. And they said to us, okay, that, that's the beginning of the process. You know, everything was shut down from here. And he looked just as he had every other day you know he didn't seem any different but they were reading these tiny signs and it was so helpful but yeah. I wish we'd been able to support him because I think maybe he had stuff he wanted to say too yeah I help share that with him there's a beautiful book and um, I think its title is called Final Gifts and it's um it- people could find it online quite easily and it it helps people in that process it attends to the tiny signs that tell you that they're so I'm not medical and I'm not pretending mm. to be I've worked in care homes and things a long time ago so I'm at home with people's bodies but I'm not at all medically trained but um, that book is really super and I've put it into the hands of so many people this idea that there's always subtle little signs that people are moving mm. in different stages and it gives you 
it equips you to feel like you could be useful to somebody in your near or far family. Um, So that's why I try and pass it on as much as possible to people. It's a really precious thing to have in in our sort of life kits, if you know what I mean. Mm. But um, the the thing about that experience, and this is what I love about how slow my path has been and how I feel it's seasonal and I feel it's organic. It's like these these growths and, and diebacks and things. Because if I hadn't done that, and I had then gone on to do my my residency by a swimming pool, which is how I became known to people mm. online. I might still have done that. Those chain of events by which I, I got some local essays published about painting fences and sitting in cafes, they may still have happened. And I might still have done my, my two years of writing a mile on my knees in public. But <laughs> when Lynn Roper, this woman who was a wild swimmer, got in touch with me, and said, I'm dying, and I've got these swimming diaries, that wouldn't have happened. Do you see what I mean? Right. So that's what I love yeah, yeah. about my past. Some of the things might still have happened, but the like, particular magic and the particular shape my life has taken over the last five years has, you know, some of the things that don't sound very exciting that seem so far away from being a writer, as we commonly understand it, were actually mm. the things that have led me deeper and deeper into this really quite deep writing life where I, I'm thrilled I've got a, you know, a book deal with a, a big publisher. But at the same time, I've already been making work and putting it out in the world. Yeah, yeah, you've been you've been doing that for a long time. Yeah. And, and so let's talk about Lynn because, yeah, you became the person that somebody could say that to. And, and Lynn was, a, a, you know, from what I, I've learned from your work about her, um, a very direct person and probably really appreciated your ability to talk frankly too oh for sure so we only met once so I was in the first year of this two-year project to write a mile on really giant rolls of paper as long as a big outdoor swimming pool this was my idea of how I could change my life while staying in my town so while the children were at school I would get this giant piece of paper and kneel down at a tiny table and write um, and and it connected me to hundreds of people Lynn was one of them um, and she asked me if I would go down to Devon so we're both West Country women and <laughs> so that we could kind of talk about her life's ending and also her give me these these swim diaries that she had published online very quick after her swims but she'd never edited mm. them she'd not ever reached that point where she braved publishing them um or approaching publishers so I went to see her and, and all the hospice experience came because you know I opened the door and she just had a big brain operation and you know I knew that I was probably only going to meet her the once and I told her so now she'd been a paramedic so she also was really used to lives ending but Mm. differently than me she'd only ever seen them usually end in emergencies she's used to your kind of you know uh, disaster actually she said that was one of the first things she said was that's among the most upsetting things I ever dealt with in the ambulance service were the mothers who were were having hemorrhages Mm. um and so we just went straight in and a lot of it was about regret. So Lynn um, had lived this amazing rich life. She had more friends than anybody I've ever encountered. Um, and they're still all in touch with me now, so many of them. Um, but she was very honest. She said, you know, I'm just naturally quite good at lots of things. And that's meant in life that whenever I've got close <laughs> to the thing I've always really wanted to do, which is be a writer, I've always diverted. I've always glanced off the side of it. Wow. And now I've run out of time. And that's so interesting for someone like you who's come into contact with that kind of regret. Like that's another huge lesson coming from somebody who has reached the end of her life and not quite got there. Yeah. 
And it takes, it's a very difficult thing to admit to, and it shouldn't be, and there shouldn't be any shame attached to it because our culture does not, we do not live in a culture and a time and a place which supports us to do things which are not easily measured. You know, the fact Mm. that I was initially doing that writing without pay, that's very difficult for some people to engage with. Um, Mm. So that's why I try and show my workings, not show people what my annual income is or anything, but I do talk quite openly about how I made it work, the choices I made so that I could do that thing. But our culture doesn't support that. It doesn't support people doing something which doesn't have an easy financial or status kind of. No, no. And, And actually more than that, something that is a purely creative or spiritual project it's, I mean, I, you know, I don't know about your upbringing, but in my upbringing, it's just silly. You know, it's not, it's not even about the money. It's about the sheer silliness of pursuing something like that. And it's embarrassing. Yeah, it was, I mean, the fact that I was educated, um, I was almost like the designated child in our extended family. I was the clever one. And a big phrase which repeats in my book is I was always told I wouldn't need my hands, which is such (laughs) a strange expression. You won't need your hands because you're going away to be educated. To be clear, it doesn't mean boarding school. I went to the local comprehensive, but what they meant was (laughs) you are going to take exams and that will take you away from here, which is indeed what happened. You know, there, mm. there wasn't a place for somebody like me in, in the Devon where I grew up. It's far, you know, deep farming country. But you know, I was told I didn't need my hands. So they wouldn't teach me how to knit or bake or do any of the many practical things they could do because I wouldn't need it. And of course, my mm. second half of life's work has been to learn all these hand-based things that give me such deep pleasure. But also my writing began as handwriting. You know, the the scrolls are 100,000 words of pen on paper written while hundreds of people ran around me, including my own children during the summer holiday. So it was almost like I was determined to use my hands. So in my second Mm. life, I don't have a religious practice. I don't have a faith, but I am avowedly spiritual or soulful in how I live my life and how I measure it. And I use my hands a lot. Everything's very physical. But yeah. That's not what I was taught. That's not what we're encouraged to do. And no, so, so Lynn had no. done this. She had kind of like gone off and been very successful. She'd been in, she'd seen active service in Iraq with the RAF. She'd been a paramedic. Yeah. She went and took some late degrees and was superb at it. Everything she did, she was good at. But the, the writing was the thing that she just, yeah. She put the blog out there and it had a lot of readers, but she didn't do that work, which we've both had to do where you, you edit and you rewrite and you give it to people and they say, you need to go again. This bit's great. And this bit doesn't fit. You know, she hadn't ever done that and she never got to. So I did it all for her. So I met her once. She died about a month and a half later. And uh, a year after that, I did make a book. And I'd never worked in publishing, but I made a book and it was on the Wainwright Prize long list. And 20 <laughs> thing is absolutely, it's nothing you can plan in advance. That's what I say to people. You can, you can, you can say, I am going to be a success if I win this prize or if I am published by this person. And that plenty of people live their life like that. But I think it's much more exciting when you say, I'm going to step outside my circles and in the small amount of time I have, I'm going to risk meeting people openly on the things that I care about. And it's quite magical, I think, what that can do to life. That can do. But I think, you know, in all fairness, Tanya, like loads of people would have said no to stuff that you said yes to. I mean, to... to... (laughs) 
I mean, you know, let's not underestimate the fact that you created a whole publishing organisation <laughs> in order to publish that book yeah. because you loved Lynn's voice so much. Mm. And, you know, we should say it became Wild Woman Swimming, which we've not, I don't think we've quite said no, the title. No, no, yes, so Wild Woman Swimming. Which, you know, is, and, and it's full of her, like, really very funny, very direct, but also really poetic voice, isn't it? It's really beautiful. And you... Other people would have said, oh, thank you so much. That's really kind, but I'm not a publisher. So, yeah, yeah good well, luck. Yeah. Um, hope it goes well for you. <laughs> Bye. But you didn't do that right. <laughs> no. no, and I think it was because, and, you know, it's a bit like when my, my my second child came along so soon after the first when I wasn't supposed to have any more children. You know, it was like I'd just begun to get a bit of time back. And I remember thinking, oh, God, how can I bear to give my time away to somebody else? And I'm just getting my time back. And Mm. and it's not that I'm some angel in the house. It's not about being worthy. You can read my story that way and go, oh, look, this woman's so selfless. But I'm not. I'm quite fiercely concerned with myself. And if you could see me now, I usually have my hands. I weigh my hands up a lot, like a balance scale, like going up Mm. and down on either side. And it's because I think I'm really important to myself and I think other people are really important so I don't find myself less important than my children or my husband yeah but neither do I find myself you know so it's a constant balancing for me of when is it appropriate to put your own wishes aside or let your own wishes change in relation Mm. to someone else and I do I think it's really exciting when that happens in life Um, but it was it was a massive commitment and you know I I didn't have any funding I didn't you know crowdfund it I used a little bit of savings I still had left because I I didn't do anything in my 20s I just had a job and saved almost all of it (laughs) risk averse person in the world which is how I've been able to afford this strange 40s that, that I've been living it was it was really kind of crazy but yeah this is why I've written my book with a kind of fairy tale motif running through it because you know in fairy tales there's the kind of Disney version which is the wish and the wand your life is transformed by wish or wand and then there's the real teaching of real fairy tale which is it is effortful it involves a path it involves bits of your body falling off it's really hard work (laughs) for no certain reward but if you go out into the snow if you walk through the woods and you are open and you develop a little bit of skill and art and craft then really exciting things can start to happen to you and that is the version of life I am signed up for until my last Mm. breath now you know whether that's next week or when I'm 101 that's the version of life I'm living which does not mean I would go back to an office tomorrow if my particular circumstances meant I needed to do that. And I would do any type of job gladly. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I can say that because I live life right now. So I can put yeah. things aside without any kind of frustration because I've had these last five years, which have been like a fairy tale existence. Yeah. And you've, you've kind of done the things you wanted to do. Yeah. And it seems to me, I mean, the way I'd describe you is you're, you're a contact seeker. You're someone who seeks full contact with this life and you, you know, you refuse to live at a distance from it. You refuse to live in a way that puts a, a kind of layer of artifice or politeness between you and that encounter. Mm. And that's the legacy of the the near death. So that was the the fundamental experience was this sense of things having slipped their skin. 
Mm. And this glorious expansiveness. Now, I really don't, as I said at the beginning, I really don't care whether that's an effect of, you know, oxygen deprival or if it's some weird chemical <laughs> brain when it's dying. I don't care. Um, I know that it felt as real to me as anything I've experienced, um, like mm. childbirth, like lovemaking. And I wanted more of it. I just wanted more. And I'm prepared. I'm, you know, I've had some heartbreaking things happen. People that I've loved who have that has caused trouble that that openness to the world has brought relationships into my life which I've wanted very much and then they've gone wrong and and they've gone away from me because they take something from that vividness but then it, it frightens them and they retreat or people wanting more from me than I can give um so there's been Mm. real heartbreaks and real you know people I've lost that I wanted to have with me for the rest of my life and and people I had to step away from and but that's the art and skill of living learning how to balance openness with yeah with some boundaries that I had to learn along the way and and with loss you know and loss is not something that we can ever mitigate against in any kind of complete sense it's just something we have to integrate so another big wintering period for me was um uh, Lynn's book was published in 2018 um September 2018 and I did all these lovely things you know going to Kendall Mountain Festival and launching her book in a room full of her friends and family down at Dartington like about 200 Mm. people who'd known her and her parents were there it was absolutely amazing but at that point I'd lost a friendship that meant the world to me and and I just, I didn't know what to do. And so I, and because I didn't know what to do, I decided to sit with that and my money was earned for the year. And I just began every day after the children went to school to get dressed and not question it because I had a lot of tears that needed to come out every day for a long time. And I would drive to a high point of the Sussex Downs in the, this windy car park and it was freezing cold. It was deep winter. <laughs> and I would get in my sleeping bag and I had flasks and gloves and a hat and I would stay, apart from nipping outside to pee in a bush, I would stay in that car <laughs> like all day in school hours and I read the Nobel laureates and I photographed the rooks I became obsessed with rooks because they were really close to the car because they were altitude um but they were close to the car if you know what I mean and yeah and it was like this deliberate ritual and I would cry and then I would read and and I was very private I'd been out in public for for two years doing the scrolls and and being a mother in the playground and suddenly I gave myself this deeply deeply private time but it had this lovely almost like base camp ritual so I suppose every time in my life and I've I've just realized this now every time in my life when I've struggled I retreat to a quite I give myself quite a strict set of rituals and routines Mm. Um, and they're very physical it's like this blanket that flask these supplies you know this packed lunch and I go and I take myself somewhere until I come back up again and it's it works really well for me I've realized and it makes active space. Tanya, thank you so much. It's just been such a lovely conversation. I feel like I could carry on forever. <laughs> thank um, you. So your book is coming out. Now, what's the date next year? Because I'll get it wrong. It's still quite a long way off. Um, so it's coming out, I think, 3rd of February, 2022. Um, and it's called The Cure for Sleep, A Late Waking Life. And it's out with Weidenfeld and Nicholson, who, um, yeah, have given me this dream book deal to tell stories. So I feel very lucky. That's wonderful. And I, you know, I'm sure it will come up for pre-order soon. So if people follow you on Twitter, what's your Twitter handle? So on Twitter, I'm just at Tanya Shadrick, and that's Tanya with a Y. And then on Instagram, I'm Tanya Shadrick Writer. And I'm not doing regular blogs at the minute because during lockdown, um, I just decided actually I've got young children. So I I just had to, to 
something had to give. But there's about seven blog posts on my website, which is tanyashedrick.com, called The Wild Patients Diaries, because Wild Patients was the name of the scrolls that I did. And they're all about the slow growing of a creative life. And there's a lot about wintering and, and growing something in our sort of coldest and most lost times that then sort of blossoms at a later stage in our life. So they're all about that. There's about, yeah, about seven or eight of them. They're quite long. And there's lots of links out to other books that have helped me in my journey. So fabulous so people can get their tenure fix before the book comes out um, <laughs> and that's all for us today thank you so much to tanya shadrick for sharing her story with us tanya's memoir the cure for sleep is out next year but until then you can follow her on twitter and instagram there are links in the show notes I'll be back next week with another brilliant writer who is intimate with winter. Thanks for listening. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well. Hello Fresh is your guilt free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.